Our passage this morning is Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. As we hear a couple of stories of how the Apostle Peter is used. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 32. Hear now the very word of God. It is completely inerrant. It is completely sufficient. There is nothing to be added to it, whether by traditions of men or by new revelations. And it is completely authoritative in our lives. Acts chapter 9 beginning at verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it on our hearts, our minds, and our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are indeed glorious. And that you have revealed yourself in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us of your goodness to us, that you would remind us that you are indeed in control. We ask that you would bless this word to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are now more than a quarter of the way through the book of Acts. Probably more like a third, almost a half. And the book of Acts can be roughly divided into two sections. The first 
12 chapters focus upon the Apostle Peter and his ministry. We've seen him preaching. We've seen him resisting the authorities when they tell him he cannot preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen him showing compassion, healing, comforting, advising. The second rough half of the book of Acts from chapter 13 onward focuses upon the Apostle Paul and his ministry. But now here in chapters 9 and 10, there is a bit of a melding. We've seen Paul come on the scene early in this chapter. And we will not see him again until chapter 13, as now we turn back to Peter. To see that Peter still has a ministry, an important ministry. And there is a real sense in which our text this morning, while it has much to teach us, is really just preparatory for what we will see next week in chapter 10. Because Acts chapter 10 is one of the most cataclysmic events in all of redemptive history. It perhaps ranks just below Pentecost in terms of the expansion of the church. And so the Lord is laying for us a preparation for the situation and for the ministry of Peter. And so what I would like us to look at this morning really are two stories. They are two stories of healing, two stories of the ministry of the Apostle Peter. And in that, we will see in these stories, we will see work being done. First, we will see those who are at work for the Lord, who are working, ministering on behalf of the Lord. But then I think more importantly, we will see behind the text that it is the Lord who is at work. In the midst of this ministry, it is God himself who is at work. Two stories of healing, those who are at work for the Lord, and then the Lord at work. Let's begin by focusing our attention here on verse 32 with the story of Peter in Lydda. Peter is making the rounds, we might say. You might even picture a doctor at a hospital as he goes from room to room, checking up on his patients. This is the kind of normal everyday rounds. This is not when the doctor comes when they yell, Dr. Smith, code blue, code blue, run quickly. This is the chart and pens and jokes and how are you feeling and what can I do to help? Room to room to room. You see, there's no particular church in trouble. Peter just wants to be with the saints. He's not holed up in Jerusalem. He's not sending orders from on high. No, Peter is out and among the people. The text even gives us that kind of feel. He went here and there among them all. And he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, you have to understand that from Jerusalem, everywhere is down in the Bible. Because Jerusalem is the center of the country and it is also up on a hill, on a mountain. And so Lydda is a smallish town about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It is a very old city. It existed in the Old Testament except for it was called Lod, L-O-D. Do you know where that is? I didn't either before I looked it up. It occurs in 2 Chronicles and in Nehemiah. But it reminds us that this city has been around for a while. It is a Jewish city 
that has become Gentileized to some extent. It is about half Jewish, half Gentile. And it has a church. You see, Peter goes to visit the saints who lived at Lydda. And by saints here, let me remind you that Luke does not mean a group of super holy believers. Do not be drawn astray by all the pomp and circumstance as we hear in the media about the Catholic Church making people saints by discovering certain miracles and taking votes and canonizing them. No. The saints are simply you and me. The saints are the ones who are holy before God and every believer in Jesus Christ is holy. Not because of their own merit, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so this is a church that is gathered together. Very likely, it is a group of refugees from Jerusalem who were perhaps gathered together and taught by Philip as he went on his coastal preaching tour through Samaria. It was a a church perhaps known for its obedience to the Lord and for its holiness. For while saints is a typical description of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is only in this passage that Luke uses the term. So Luke wants to remind us that this is an ordinary church in a small town, but it is an extraordinary group of people because of what God has done. And so Peter goes on this tour and he comes upon a man by the name of Aeneas. And in addition to sharing a famous name from antiquity, he is a man who is bedridden. He has, we might say, to use the old term, the palsy. He is bedridden for eight years. He is paralyzed. And when I speak of someone who has the palsy, someone who is paralyzed, your mind perhaps might be groping of another such description. I'll help you. It's in Mark chapter 2. You remember the man. He was laying on his bed because he couldn't move and his ingenious friends found a way to get him near to Jesus. Do you remember? They let him down through the roof. Can you imagine what the homeowner thought about that? As they moved the roof away and lowered him down. Now, I say this because I think Luke wants us to think of this passage. There are many similarities. Peter comes in and he sees Aeneas. Eight years he's been paralyzed. You don't fake laying on your bed for eight years. You might fake not being able to smell or having a bad stomach ache, or having a bad back for a month and a half. But this kind of situation is very clear. It would be known to all. Do you notice that in Acts, all of these healings are very obvious and very clear and very public. So unlike the healings today, so-called. Well, Peter walks up to Aeneas, and it's very interesting. He just simply declares to him what Jesus has done. He says, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately, Aeneas, rise up, rises up. (coughs) What boldness of Peter to know that the power of God is in the ministry of God. And immediately, Aeneas gets up so that there is no doubt that he is healed. I wonder if for those who were seeing this happen, if there was as much slight humor in here as I get. 
Can you imagine that? You've been in bed for eight years. You're healed. Go make your bed. Moms everywhere rejoice. But do you see how that mixes together? We have an extraordinary event. And Peter says, this is ordinary for the kingdom of God. This is a picture of what life will be like. Not that everyone will be healed who is sick, but that as the kingdom comes, everyone will be glorified. There will come a time when everyone is healed. When all will have their pains removed. When all will be able to walk, to talk, to do everything. That is the consummation of the kingdom. That is what we have to look forward to, beloved. Are you in pain now? Jesus tells you you will not be forever. Are you experiencing difficulty of memory loss or the difficulty of focus or perhaps the difficulty of moving around because your limbs are weak? Luke tells us that this will not always be the case. This is not the world that God has created. God has created a world where it is perfect, where we are powerful, where we are able to follow after Him. And Peter is breaking into our sinful world and showing the glory of what comes from the gospel. That is the point of this healing. It is not that Peter is some kind of magician. It is not that Aeneas has more faith than someone else. We don't even hear of Aeneas' faith. We just may assume he's a Christian. What it is about is the power of Jesus. And so we have a second story then. Peter is in Lydda, and in verse 36, we hear of a town called Joppa, where there is a disciple called which is translated means Dorcas. I always wonder why no one names their daughters Dorcas. You see, Dorcas and Tabitha are the same word, so to speak. You wonder, how can this be translated? They don't look anything alike. Both Tabitha and Dorcas mean gazelle. And so in those days, as we think about names meaning something, we might think of Tabitha as one who is known for her beauty, for her gentle spirit, like a gazelle. As she walks through a room, you could just imagine people look and take notice. And as we read more about her, it is obvious, it seems, that she's a woman of means. She could buy cloth and buy garments and make things for others and make many things for many other people. She is a generous woman. Now, Joppa is a town that is about 10 miles northwest of Lydda. So if you think about Jerusalem, and here is the coast, 25 miles to Lydda, and then 10 more miles to Joppa. It is, as Luke says, not very far. If you wonder where Joppa is on a map, you can go home and Google Tel Aviv. That is where... Joppa is. It is known in history as Jaffa, with two F's. It is a storied place since the Old Testament. It is a place where many military campaigns and wars were fought. It was the site of a famous massacre by Napoleon as he campaigned in the Middle East. And it is a port city that is close to where Peter is. And you see here what happens is in verse 38... Lydda is near Joppa, and the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him. Now, you can imagine, 10 miles is, as the marathon runner runs, 
an hour or two or three. As I run, it's a half a day or one. But it's still very close. You can imagine what probably happened was after this healing, someone went from Lydda to Joppa and said, you're not going to believe this. Peter's come up from Jerusalem and he healed this man. He'd been in a bed for eight years. Healing? You mean Peter, the same one that healed a lame man in Jerusalem? Yes. The same one that walked on water with our Lord? Well, yes. Well, we need to get him over here. Why? Well, you see, one of the dearest women in our congregation, Tabitha, she passed away. They're mourning for her right now in the upper room. Maybe Peter can do something. Maybe, if nothing else, Peter can come and pray with us and give us comfort. Okay, let's send an expedition after him. And you can imagine they pick two of the fastest runners, two young men perhaps in their teens, and they say, go and get Peter. Now, brief aside here, do you notice how many times in the book of Acts two people are sent with a message? Over and over again. It's like two witnesses. It's like they really want to make clear to Peter that they need him. This is not simply an informal request, not a, an opportunity for Peter to decline graciously. So they send him to Peter, and they don't bury Tabitha. Now, typically, you would bury someone who had died relatively quickly within the time of death. Because not having embalming, or not embalming as the Jews did, it would be not very long before in the famous words of the story of Lazarus, Lord, he stinketh. And so here we see them laying her up in the upper room and washing her. The very act of this shows that they believe God can do something in their midst. They have hope. They don't know for sure, but they have hope. And so they send this earnest request to Peter. They urge him, please come without delay. And Peter comes and he goes into the upper room and he sends everyone out of the room. He goes in and everyone is weeping. And he sends them all out of the room. Does that remind you of anything? It should. Again, I'll help you. Mark chapter 5. When Jesus went and raised Jairus' daughter from the He went up into the room, and he put out all the mourners. And he raised her from the dead, even as Peter does. I think Luke wants us to see these two parallels because he wants us to see the ministry of Jesus Christ going forward in the church. As a matter of fact, in the original Aramaic, it would be incredibly obvious. You see, Jesus would have said, Talitha kume. And Peter would have said, Tabitha kume. One letter difference from little girl and Tabitha arise. You see, Luke wants us to see that the power of Jesus Christ was not limited to his life and ministry. That the church goes forward that he has established. Two stories of healing in Lydda. And in Joppa. Well, what is going on beyond these stories? Are we meant to hear these and to think and to hope that if we're sick, someone will come, that I will come to your home and say, by Jesus Christ, 
Get up, make your bed. No. That's not what Luke is getting at here. Because you see, these types of healings, while they occur, are not ordinary or normal. There are other people we would imagine in both of these churches who are lame, who are sick, who are dying. The church has always had people who are poor, who are struggling. Jesus did not come to give us our best life now. Jesus came to make us right with God. And evidence of that is in the power of the kingdom as it goes forward. And here God breaks in to our sinful world twice to show us the kingdom advancing. He also wants to show us the ministry that comes in the kingdom. Because in the midst of these two stories, we see two people at work for the Lord. The first and most obvious is Peter. After all, we said he is on a church tour. He is checking on and helping churches throughout the region. He knows that they may be struggling with teachers. They may need funds. They may have questions. And so he is going about to solidify the churches. Peter is a leader and he acts like one. He's not concerned with himself and his own well-being. He is going out to strengthen the churches. And I want you to notice something about Peter that is an important lesson for all of us as we minister. One of the most critical things, one of the most critical characteristics that you can have today as you seek to minister for the Lord Jesus Christ is a very simple thing. Availability. You think, well, I don't have the best speech. Are you available? Well, I don't know everything about the Bible. Are you available? Because you see, that's the main characteristic that brings this second story about. Peter is in Lydda. He's on a tour. He has important things to do. And you can imagine two men, perhaps two young men, come up to him and say, you have to come. We're in a town ten miles away. And we've got a bunch of widows You have to come and you have to help us. Someone has died and the widows are upset. You've got to come help us. Now, I can imagine in age, far too many men saying, but you, well, I've got that book tour. Oh, no, you know, it's 10 miles out and, and back. That's going to take me the better part of a couple of days. I'm supposed to be in this other town. You know, send them my regards. Here, let me quick write them a note. I'll get them a nice card and I'll put it in the mail. But you see, not Peter. He sees an opportunity to minister. He doesn't think to himself, these are just some widows, they'll get over it. No, he goes out to minister to them. And the effect it has is remarkable. So Peter goes out, he's not too busy, he goes out to this town on the coast to talk to the widows. This is not exactly strategic ministry. This is another thing we need to be aware of. Too often we are concerned whether a ministry or a church plant or an opportunity is strategic or not. And if it's not strategic, then we pass it by. But you see, not Peter. He is simply desiring to obey God. And that's a lesson for us, I think. We are not to think about how we should obey God to bring the best results about. 
We are not to think about what will come from what God has asked us to do. We are merely to obey. We are merely to follow His Word and do what He asks of us and leave the circumstances in His hands. They are anyway, aren't they? You see, that's a great temptation that the devil brings to us. We say in our head and we say in our theology that God is sovereign. He's in control of every little detail. And every time something comes up that we don't think is happening the way it should, we enter into a discussion with God. Thinking that we are going to change His mind, that we are going to influence Him by our wonderful wisdom and knowledge of the universe. Far better to act like Peter to hear the voice of Jesus, and to go. You see, that's what Peter's doing. He's going on this tour. He is helping the widows because he's following the command of Jesus Christ to take the gospel out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So Peter goes out. And I want you to notice where his focus is. His focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he says Jesus Christ heals you. That's why after each of these incidents, as we'll see in a moment, the glory goes to Jesus, not Peter. Peter doesn't have a healing tour. Peter doesn't call a revival. He's simply following the work of Jesus. Now, think about this. The next time you are asked to minister to someone. The next time you have an opportunity when someone calls you on the phone and needs you and dinner's on the stove and there are three things that need to be done and you say, well, can't, can I get back to you in an hour or two? Think of the effects here that happen. Peter heals a man who has been bedridden for eight years and he raises someone from the dead and you know what? Feed compared to what happens. In these stories. Because you see what really happens. The real effect is found in verse 35. And in verse 42. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. That is the healed man. And they turned to the Lord. What a wonderful phrase. They didn't run to Peter and say where's my healing. They turned to Jesus. Because they saw what Jesus could do. And I think also because they heard the gospel that Jesus preached through Peter. Look at verse 42. After Tabitha is raised from the dead, it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Same result. It's... it's, Luke's way of describing the same thing in two ways. Turning to the Lord, believing in the Lord. (coughs) You see, the effects of these healings are not about the people who are healed primarily. It's about the kingdom of Jesus advancing. It's about the gospel going forward. It's about the lost being won. It's about salvation coming to households. It's about angels rejoicing. Do you think about that as we have our own opportunities? You see, we can be tempted in the same way. We count up the number of students who've come to our VBS and we rejoice. And you know what? That's the least of it. It's the effect on families that we have with the gospel, the opportunity provided by VBS. 
We think about the wonderful teaching that we get in Sunday school. And you know what? That's the least of it. Because it's the get and incorporate into our lives and take out into the communities as we comfort God's saints and as we bring the gospel to the lost, as we are equipped to build Christ's kingdom by His Spirit. You see, this is how it happens. Do you know the story of Charles Spurgeon? You all know perhaps who Charles Spurgeon is, perhaps one of the most famous preachers in the English world. Pastor of the Metro Tabernacle pulpit. His sermons are read, listened to, and studied today by millions. His library was gigantic. Just of his sermons alone, volume after volume, some 60 or 70. Perhaps one of the most influential preachers in the world. But do you know how Spurgeon became Spurgeon? Spurgeon became Spurgeon because he went to a church to go listen to a famous minister. There was only one problem. The minister wasn't there that day. He was ill or unable to come to the pulpit. And so someone filled in for him, a layman. And the layman was not much of a... His text was from the book of Isaiah. Look unto me, all you nations, and be saved. And that basically was his sermon. He said that a half dozen times and then sat down. Now, we would think, okay, anybody could do that. Probably gardeners who can read can do that. Yes. But do you see how that man being available and being willing and doing what he could and trusting God for the outcome... The Lord Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit, used that simple, you can't even quite call it a sermon, to bring His instrument, Charles Spurgeon, to faith. That one instance was explosive in its effect for the kingdom. How do you know what your work for the Lord Jesus Christ will do? Don't count by what you can see. You don't know. There's another famous story of a man who was converted 70 years after hearing a sermon by the Puritan John Flavel. 70 years later, he was reading something, remembered the sermon, and was converted. I tell you, Flavel was not around to see that on earth. We must follow in the steps of Peter. We must be willing to serve the Lord and to see how he will work through us. But Peter's not the only one here at work. There's also a woman by the name of Tabitha. And she is an example of a godly woman. She is lifted up for us here. There are many signs in which we see this. First, she is called a disciple in verse 36. This is the only place in all of the New Testament that the female word for disciple is used. The only one. Do you think Luke wants to get our attention? She not only is raised from the dead, she's the only female disciple so named specifically in the Greek, but she is one who is full of good works and acts of charity. Now, the the tense here is one of continual action. She is not only full of good works, she did them continually, we might say. 
She's always doing good works. She's always doing charity. And what did she do? Does she give millions of dollars to foundations? Does she teach in a seminary? Does she have a title? No. You know what she does? She's a member of the knitting club. She's a knitter and a sewer. And that has a profound effect on many people's lives. Because you see, as Peter comes in, all the widows are around, and you can almost imagine the sight. If it weren't a funeral, it would be humorous. All of the older women saying, Look, Peter, look, she made me this shirt. Oh, you think that? Look, look, she made me this skirt. Look, oh, look, she made me this outfit. Look at how beautiful it is. Look at how long it must have taken her. Oh, I know, it's like mine too, but mine's a different color. She made it for me after I saw yours. I couldn't, I couldn't afford a nightgown and she made one for me so I wouldn't be cold. You see? She's affecting people's lives and she's doing it by making garments. She cared for these widows. She didn't just have extra time on her hands. She wanted these widows to be served and as a result, they loved her. Look at verse 39. They stood beside him weeping because they loved her. Those of you that do such work, be encouraged. I know there are many of you out there that make casseroles, that watch children, that bring medicine, that help clean a house, that hem garments, that fix blankets, that do all kinds of things that go completely unseen, but God sees them. Do not ever think because people do not know and see everything you do, that it is unneeded, that it is unwanted, and that it is not glorious in the sight of God. Tabitha was full of good works. There are many in the Scriptures who would desire that to be said of them. This is the way that we serve one another. What a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Two people who work for Jesus. But are they the only ones at work here? Are they the only ones making an effect? No. Because you see, as we have seen so often, it is the Lord who is also at work in their midst. There's something interesting here that is a little bit hidden by our translation. If you look with me at verse 32, and then at verse 37, and then at verse 43, you will not see something. It is a little word. Some translations will see it. It is a little word that is so little that it goes untranslated often. Older translations will translate it, it came to pass. Modern translations may translate it, it happened. Some translations, because it's very much a transition word, will leave it out. Now, in those days, and. But you see, Luke is again here giving us a clue. In each one of these sections where he begins talking about the things that are going on, he says, you know, it happened. It came to pass. And if we know our Luke we know that Luke does not believe in luck. Luke does not believe this is an accident. Things don't just come to pass. 
The God who is in charge of history is at work. And he is giving us a clue that in Lydda and in Joppa and in Peter's life, God is at work. Each of these instances is in God's hands. And this is true even when it's not stated. God is in charge of the circumstances. And now this should not surprise us because let me tell you something that may be shocking. We live in a supernatural world. You know that, don't you? You do every time you pray. You do every time you ask the Lord to heal, to protect, to guide. We live in a supernatural world and we can tend to forget it because the world outside tries to deny that with every fiber of its being. God is the one who is at work here. God is the healer. God is the raiser from the dead. God is the one who turns his people to himself. God is the one who, as Paul will tell us when he writes the letter to the Ephesians, who gives faith to those who believe in Jesus. You see, God is at work here. This is not a story of two small churches and an itinerant apostle. This is a story of King Jesus building his kingdom. Do you look at the world this way? Do you look at the world waiting to see what God will do? You see, we must look at the world through kingdom eyes. Now that does not mean, because we know that the world is supernatural, that we expect God to be our cosmic servant. We do not expect God to fix everything we would want fixed. Or to do everything we would want to do. We must avoid expecting God to serve us. But we must remember that God is at work. He is the one who is active. He is not a watchmaker God. He is active in the lives of His people all the time. Whether it's in Lydda or in Joppa or in Katy. Do you believe that, beloved? If you do, perhaps this week you will pray just a bit more fervently for those in our congregation who are ill hoping that the Lord will break through and show us His grace in healing power. Not expecting that He has to. Praying to Him that He would, that He would bless us. But you see, God is not just at work in the lives of His people. He is also at work in preparing His kingdom. Do you notice something that's going on here that is also going on in the broader spectrum of Acts? It is always the Lord who is the focus of the ministry. Peter comes and goes. Paul comes and goes. Philip comes on the scene. Others minister. Barnabas. They come and go. But the Lord is always present. It is always the Lord who is the focus. And we see that even now in the lead-in to Acts chapter 10. Who is the apostle to the Gentiles, Acts tells us? Who did Jesus Christ specifically pick to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Paul, right? So why is God opening up the ministry to the Gentiles through Peter, not Paul? It's because it's not about Peter or Paul, it's about Jesus. There is no competition here. And this is the way our ministry 
should be and should be focused. As our church, Christ's church is built up, there is no competition. There is no, I am of Fred, I am of John. There is merely the ministry of Jesus Christ that we all share in and we move forward in. This is the work of God in the midst of His people, bringing about the kingdom. And it reminds us that the kingdom of God is practical. It is not merely in word, but it is in power. I remind you again that before Christianity, hospitals did not exist. Education did not exist outside of a few select schools. Charity was non-existent. It is the Christian religion. It is the faith of Jesus Christ. It is the church of Jesus that brings about this compassion, this love that manifests itself in the lives of people. The kingdom of God comes in power to you and to me. Do you desire to hear that? You will be excited about the kingdom of Christ and all of your concerns for other things will fade away. Because your faith and your hope and your trust will be in Jesus. For He alone heals. He alone raises the dead. He alone turns us to God. It's the power of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Let's pray.